This is it, people. This is what you've been waiting for. This is Everyday Celebrity Podcast. The podcast for everyday people with everyday problems trying to find everyday solutions to accomplish everyday goals. Let's start the show. You, 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 you. This is another episode. Welcome everybody to Everyday Celebrity Podcast, number one podcast in Oakland, number one podcast in the Bay Area. This is your host, number one host in the Bay Area as well, Jordan Awandi, and today we have a very special guest. Um, he is an actor, a comedian, a business owner, an entrepreneur, uh, probably a motivational speaker because when you have so many talents, you have to give back to people. So when you give advice, I consider that motivational speaking. We have Mr. Rockefeller. Welcome to the show. How you doing, sir? How was your day today? Uh, busy. Busy? Yeah, I've been doing things since 8 o'clock this morning. Okay, sp- explain this uh, this basketball tournament you were talking about earlier. Uh, well, I'm a public address announcer, mm-hmm. and we... I just did a basketball tournament that was for two days, and it was called the uh, Miles McGowan. It was the 15th annual Miles McGowan All-Star Coaches Classic, Mm -hmm. and it was a a young kid that died of cancer at five years old, and I believe this is like the 15th one that they've done, and it was at Merritt College, so it's a series of uh, basketball games, and it was all um, girls' basketball ranging from middle school to high school. Mm-hmm. And then they also had a WUBA game, which is, I believe, semi-pro or pro. And it had an all-star game, East versus West. Mm-hmm. So it's actually been cool. Is it to raise money for the child's family or just for cancer? It's just um, it's like a memorial. Okay. You know, and they also give out scholarships. Uh-huh. Um, they, had, they gave out, you know, brand new, tennis shoes to you mm. know some of the players okay uh yeah it was actually it was actually pretty fat man it was a good family event so how long have you been uh doing sports announcements well actually i've been doing public address probably like the last 10 or 11 years mm. so i do more than sports i do sports award shows events um i've done boxing mm. I've done basically everything that has to do with public address. I've even uh, been a host for a game show called mm-hmm. In the House, the Shelter in Place Game Show, where our uh-huh. contestants play from the safety and comfort of their own home. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's 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 start way back uh, at the beginning of your career. Um, you are born and raised in San Francisco, correct? All day, sir. Okay. Western Edition, Phil Steiner and Turk. Uh-huh. And you. Uh, Started college at where? Laney? Actually, I started college at um, City College of San Francisco, mm-hmm. but I went to college after I got out of the military. I went to the military when I was 17. Okay. What so, branch? Um, I went into the U.S. Army. Okay. Was Telecommunications. That because, <laughs> was that because you were fucking up? No, actually, I went into the military because in high school, I was in ROTC. Uh. And... Back then, I graduated 1984, George Washington High School. Mm-hmm. And when I was going to school, a lot of people didn't um, preach college. A lot of folks that I know were going into the military. Yeah. So basically, a lot of my friends went into the military, and it was just military, military. And I enjoyed myself so much in ROTC. I was like, well, 
let me get a military a crack. Wait, 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 wait. Let me, let me, let me. I got a question. Um, so, you know, how you said they weren't preaching college to you. Do you think they weren't preaching college to your demographic because of your race? Because I know they preach college to like the white kids. Right. They um that that you know what that's a really good question. It was just I I wasn't I don't think I was around people that went to college. A lot of people I was around had uh family members in the military. Mm-hmm. So it was just that thing, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. then um I talked to a recruiter and he was like, "Well, the military is this and you know they do all these promises. Man, you can do this and that." And when I went into the military, I didn't take advantage of what the military had to offer. Mm-hmm. You know, because they have, you know, um, the GI Bill and, yeah. you know, they got, you know, college stuff that they'll pay for your college to go, you know, and I'd never really researched it before I went. You know, I was 17 years old and I just wanted to just go because mm-hmm. I enjoyed ROTC so much, you know what I mean? And being in ROTC for four years, mm-hmm. um, you know, you're around people that after ROTC, they were going to go into the military. Yeah. You know, so I was around those kind of people. So, you know, it was like, I really wasn't around the cats are like, man, after high school, I'm going to college. Mm. How long were you in the military? I was in the military, uh, three active, three inactive. Okay. So you got out of the military and then did you go straight to school? Um, yeah, actually, when I got out of the military, I did go straight to school. Okay. But I was actually stationed out here. I was in the, um, the army reserves. So I was, always in California. So I was going to school basically at the same time. Back in those days were these like these military bases still around back in those days? Uh, yeah, Presidio okay. was still around. Okay. And I did a lot of stuff on the Presidio. Okay. Um, after I went to my basic training, which was uh, Fort Jackson, South Carolina in the South, mm. and then Fort Gordon, Georgia, uh, which was in Georgia. And I think when I went into the military, not I think, but when I went into the military, that was actually my first time really experiencing serious racism <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people say that shit yeah but you, did you experience it with like your fellow uh like army people or yeah just talking uh, about in, just my, being in, the in my platoon yeah it was like um you know there was you know white boys in there mm. that never been around black folks and all they knew mm-hmm. about black folks is what they seen on television or what they thought yeah. you know what i mean and me, I've always, you know, I've always been sort of a comedian, you know, and, uh, you know, I'm in our uh, barracks and I'm making people laugh, you know, and uh, these white boys walked up to me, this one particular white boy walked up to me and said, you know, in the middle of a laugh, like, man, you're the first black guy I ever liked. And then the room got silent and everybody looked at me and I thought for a second, because, you know, your first reaction is like, I should bust him in his mouth. <laughs> but then I thought for a second and I was like, was that a compliment? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Just to to ease the tension because it was like my first day. Yeah. And I did it just, you know, to ease the tension. I was like, man, is that a compliment? I mean, it's <laughs> fucked up to say, but I mean, it, it is his probably it is his truth. And then it'll probably lead to like, you know what? Black people aren't that bad and it'll turn a racist into a, a non-racist. You understand what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. But yeah, I had, you know, encounters with that that same guy. Um he had a, I remember a white, I mean, a black drill sergeant had made us do push-ups, mm-hmm. you know, and he had us out there like 4.30 in the morning, you know, pushing up the earth. And I'm doing push-ups next to this guy and this dude said, man, see, that's why I don't like your people. 
Okay, yo, I take that back. Yeah, that and, and I was like, uh, you know, after we did the push-ups or whatever, I went and got out of the drill sergeant. I was like, look, man, I'm going to really put hands on this cat mm. because this dude said this to me. And my drill sergeant's my drill sergeant's white. And I think the drill sergeant, when we were um, in formation, he called me out of line. And he called this other brother out of line because at that time in my platoon, I was like fourth platoon and every other platoon, there was four platoons in our company. And I had the only platoon that only had two brothers. Everybody else was mixed. It was half and half. I had two brothers in my whole platoon, myself and this other guy. He called us out of line and he called uh, that white boy out of line and he said, now call him a nigga. That's what the platoon. That's what the, uh, the, uh, yeah, the drill sergeant said. He said, call him a nigga. Mm hmm. And we was looking at him like, please call me a nigga. And dude was looking at drill sergeant like he was confused. And the drill sergeant told him, he said, man, there was no color in here, man. Everybody's green. I said, these two cats right here one day might save your life. And then um, after that had happened, a white boy walked up to me. He said, man, why did you tell the drill sergeant? I said, man, to keep from killing your ass, bro, because you don't know <laughs> what you said to me. You saying it in context like it's cool. Mm-hmm. And it's not cool because you don't know how it sounds to me, mm-hmm. you know, and then after that, we would swear. Did the other black, uh, well, did the other black person, well, basically, did you bond with the other black person in your platoon? Yeah, we were cool, but even so, we were like really from two different places. You know, I was from California and he was somewhere like in the rural south. So he's one of those so, black people who just yeah, want you know to turn the other cheek on the one white people do shit. You know, it's like. It was like dude was damn near from a farm or something. So, you know, he just didn't really know. <laughs> yeah, that slave mentality still. You know, but um he had actually uh he had got kicked out because I guess I, I guess it was he kicked out because he just couldn't hack basic training, you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? As far as the the exercise and stuff like that. They put another brother in it in there that we actually clicked. This dude was from like Detroit. Yeah. And we got along well. We was partners, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? So after that, it was like, you know, already four weeks in. So me and Dude was together for like a month. And, you know, we was just hanging out. But mm-hmm. I was also friends with the other platoons, mm-hmm. you know, that had all the brothers. And I remember one time we was in formation. His brother uh, walked past us. And he was like, man, where's all the brothers at? And he's like, okay, one right here. And oh, they go the other one. And then he walked up to me and he whispered, but he whispered loudly. He say, hey, man. If any one of these white boys get out of line, we downstairs. I was like, yeah, okay. And then I looked at the white boys like, yeah, bro, I ain't here by myself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so explain the process. Uh, a lot of people don't know shit about the military. I mean, they know of the military, but they don't know the process of joining the military. What was your process of joining? Uh, going to basic training for two months. Mm-hmm. Did and you then- have to take the, the ASVAB test? Yeah, I took okay. the ASVAB and one So thing, the army is the, is what you specifically were aiming for. You weren't aiming for like the Air Force and No, nah, okay. I wanted to go in the army because um in ROTC I was in, you know, the Army ROTC. Mm-hmm. And then the army um actually had way more job choices than anything mm-hmm. and if I'd known that, I would have explored more. Cause I just picked the first thing I seen that was in communications, which is a telecommunications center control operator. Did they give you a list of job options based on your score? Yeah, actually they did. Okay. But I didn't really study it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I just seen the first thing that said, um, communications and I was like, I want to do this, but I never knew that you can go in the army and be a DJ. 
You know what I mean? And learn radio. I had no idea. Like there's jobs in there that you could have done. I mean, you can go in the army and learn photography. I mean, you can learn uh, videography. Yeah, everything, you know, Mm -hmm. and I never knew that. Mm -hmm. So I really didn't study my options because I would have probably picked something else. So you weren't into communications. I was in, yeah, I was in telecommunications. No, I'm saying, but you, you weren't very, you weren't passionate about it. You just picked it just to. I picked it because it was communications. Okay. Okay. So, um, did you have, where, where, where was your boot camp? Um, my boot camp was in, um, uh, Fort Jackson, South Carolina. So when you left San Francisco, I'm assuming that's where you left out of. Yes, sir. San Francisco. And then when you touched down in South Carolina, like when you hop off the plane or bus or whatever, did anything, did like, did it hit you like, oh yeah, shit? Yeah, it was hot. <laughs> it was hot, bro. And I, and my dumb ass, I went in the army. I had just got a fresh curl like two weeks before I went in the military, which was stupid. What year was this again? This was 1984. 1984. And I already knew that I was going in the military and I decided, let me, man, let me get my curl fresh right quick. Knowing that as soon as I got off the plane, like a day or two later, mm. they was going to cut my shit off. Mm. You know what I mean? And when I went there, you know, I'm from California. We, we know we kick back. Everybody yeah. thinks that, you know, we beaches and lazy. Mm. And I had an attitude. You know, I'm 17, wasn't, you know, used to the environment. And I think I pissed off some drill sergeants when we were in line for the haircut. And I was about maybe 150 soldiers back. And they took my black ass out of line and put me next. Mm. They said, they oh, seen, you just like, I'm not fucking cutting my hair. That's what you were saying? Yeah, they seen, yeah, I was just, you know, I just had an attitude. Some drill sergeants walked up. They seen this long ass curl. Where you from? And they just all in my face. And I'm just looking at them, like really staring them down. And they was like, yeah, we got something for your ass. Mm-hmm. Took me out of line, put me next. It's like, now you next. And I had an audience when my hair was getting cut. <laughs> so you see these curls just uh-huh. falling, you know, and, um, I mean, I had an audience and I was pissed. Like that day, I wanted to go home, but I was mm. like, "Nah, man, let me tough this out." Mm-hmm. How long was boot camp? Uh, two months. Two months. So after boot camp, where'd you go? Um, after boot camp, I came home for ten days, and then I went to uh, Fort Gordon, Georgia, mm. which is your advanced individual training, which they call AIT, and that's where you learn your job skill. So it's basically like going to like college or something. Yeah. Okay. And how long was that? That was three months, I believe. Was was that experience better than just? Oh, it was way better because you got to party. Okay, you know what I mean. When you get to AIT, man, it's like you know you in the barracks, you know, with all these different soldiers from different places, mm. and again, I made myself popular by doing dumb shit. Um, with like with the brass. Um, when I got back from um, when I got back from California, I bought a BB gun, right? A 357, it was a pellet gun. So I decided to take it with me like a dummy. <laughs> and I wanted to get it, uh, you know, locked in a safe. So I thought it was smart mm. to walk in where all these officers were with this 357, uh, pellet gun that looks like a real 357. And I held it up and I was like, excuse me, I would like to put this in the safe. And all these cats hit the floor like, Call the MPs, call the MPs. And I just dropped it. I was like, dude, it's a pellet gun. It's not real. Y'all take this and, you know, do whatever with it. And they was like, why the hell would you do something like that? And I think they ended up throwing it away or something. But Did you get from, yeah, from that day on, it was just like this mm-hmm. guy. Okay. 
So after after you finished A school, where was your first uh, assignment? Presidio. Presidio. I was at home. Oh, yeah. Okay. Did they you, wasn't uh, going to send me anywhere because they thought that if they sent me somewhere, it was probably going to end up sending my black ass back home because mm-hmm. I, you know what I'm saying? I, it's just like, like I said, I was 17, man, and I just thought I could have an attitude with everybody. Mm-hmm. So I was actually really stationed on the Presidio. Okay. So a lot of people don't really know the history of like the Presidio and like all these bases out here because all they know is that um, all they do is see abandoned like buildings and shit. So what was what was it like? out here in the Bay Area when the military was here? It was cool. I mean, because the Presidio, um, after I got out the military, I had, um, my cousin was in the Army and his wife was in the Army and they were, and they were both stationed on the Presidio. Mm-hmm. So the Presidio, I mean, they had these cool ass apartments. I mean, you don't pay for them because you're in the military. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So I used to hang on uh, the Presidio a lot and also on the Presidio, on the backside of the Presidio is a beach called Baker Beach mm-hmm. and Baker Beach was a nude beach. And, you know, we, you know, we little horny cats, we usually just go down there and just sit on a rock and just watch folks. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Was Treasure Island, uh, military too back in the day? Uh, Treasure Island, I believe used to be military, but, but it, wasn't it hasn't been, yeah, time. it hasn't been military in a while. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I was never on Treasure Island. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was always on the Presidio, but the Presidio was cool because even when I was in high school, uh, my high school was only probably half a mile from the Presidio. Mm-hmm. So I used to go to Presidio a lot with some friends of mine, um, a lot of army brats. What we call army brats is um, kids of military personnel that just, you know, they just travel. Mm-hmm. And a lot of cats that I hung with, their families were in the military. Mm-hmm. So I used to hang with them dudes and we used to hang on the base. You know, they had a basketball court, bowling alley, you know, the whole night. It was like a little city on the base. So that's where I was always at. So you never migrated to like, oh, I'm going to go to Oakland today and shit like that? No. No? No, I was always, uh, in high school, I was always on the base. I didn't start uh, really hanging out in Oakland probably until I got older. Mm. What is uh, some positives about being in the military and then what are some negatives, do you think? I think the positives about being in the military is that, um, especially the Army, is that you can go in there and find a career. You know, a lot of things that you want to do, you can do in the military. You can learn your job training there. Like they'll train you and then they'll give you the experience. So when you get out of the military, you're all, or it depends on how long you stay in the military. You got at least three or four years experience in that job. Mm. So had I went into like radio, once I got out of the military, I'd have been three years in and I could have been in a radio station like, Hey, I was in the military doing, you know, radio. I was in this country, this country, that country, the whole nine. And they would have chalked that up as experience, mm. which would have been cool. So I already had the experience to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, the negatives is just, um, it's a routine. Yeah. You know, you can't, like, if you just wanted to decide to go on a trip, you just can't do that. It's like, now nah, you got to get a leave. You got to do this. You know, some of the people that you deal with, um, you might not want to deal with. You know, you got different ranks. You know, it's, it's that part of it is just straight. You're like forced to be around people you would never be around. Right. Normally. You know what I mean? And then you're forced to respect people that mm-hmm. you would never be around. Like, 
if you know that this cat is probably from the south and you know, a prejudiced motherfucker, whatever, mm-hmm. if his rank is higher than yours, you have to respect that no matter what you yeah. think about this cat. Yeah. Yeah, that would suck for me. So after you got out, did you go back home to like the family? Yeah, I came back to San Francisco and I actually got into uh, stand up comedy back in 1986. So did, actually, I was still that, in the military. How did that happen? An epiphany. <laughs> People always said that I should do comedy. Okay. You know, I used to do like a lot of impressions of cartoon characters when I was like 10 and 11. So I was always making people laugh. Even when I was in the military, I was always making people laugh. So um, when I got out, there was this comedy club called the Holy City Zoo. And this is a club that, you know, Robin Williams used to perform at, Ellen DeGeneres, uh, Rob Schneider, you know, all of these folks used to go there and work out. It was a good little workout room, and this is a real small club in San Francisco. I found out about it, and I was just like, man, let me do my crack at comedy, because I was always a writer, and I always, you know, study comedians. Um, so I was just like, let me write a little bit and go do comedy. And I so think it was like an open, open mic night? It was an open mic night, yeah. Okay. And I went on there, and I think I had like a, a navy blue blazer. You know what I mean? I went in there mm-hmm. sharp, and I... I went up on stage like 11, 30, 12 o'clock when nobody was really trying to hear comedy. You know what I mean? It wasn't nothing in there but comedians and maybe five people in the audience. Mm-hmm. And everything I told, I didn't get a snicker. But I went up there with all these fake credits like, yeah, he's been on Soul Train. He's been this because Soul Train used to have comedians. So I went up there with all these false credits. You know what I mean? Did my thing. But the club uh, manager liked me. Cause she liked the way I put my jokes together and I, you know, I told it fluently. So, um, I went back the next week and I went up probably like fourth. And when I did my show, people liked it. You know, I was on stage probably about six or seven minutes and they liked my act. And I was like, you know what? I can actually do this. Were you getting paid? Uh, no, nah, not at okay. that time. No, nah, we, I mean, when you're a comic, man, you got to do a whole bunch of open mics before anybody even offer you a job. Mm-hmm. So um, I was doing a gang of open mics, like for um, at least three or four years. And at that time, they had organizations, I think this one organization called the Foxes, and they were an organization that books comedians. But, you know, a lot of the comedians they were booking was white. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't really cook, uh, book no brothers until like, you know, the Def Jam days. Mm-hmm. You know, that's when they start booking brothers. But I did my thing for about three or four, uh, years before my first paid gig. And in between the time doing comedy, I got into, uh, television okay. in 1989. Uh, what was it? What was television? Man, I, I was a big fan of Soul Train. So my first show was a dance show called And the Beat Goes On. And I just invited people I used to go to the club with. Because, you know, when you're young, man, I, f- I had a club to go to seven days a week. I was always at the club. Mm. and uh, Dancing. Uh, dancing. Always. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then sometimes if, if you get booked to do a comedy show, sometimes you might open for somebody bigger. You know what I mean? And most of these times, um, the comedy shows were at, a venue that wasn't a, you know, a comedy club is just at a venue. Then after that, there's a party. Mm-hmm. So you're just there, you know, you're always in the atmosphere. So, I mean, I used to party my ass off. So I was like, Hey, 
I want to do my own dance show. And I discovered public access television on a fluke. Did you create, uh, come up with all these ideas? I mean, you say you were in the, in the club all the time. Did drugs come apart? Like tripping on acid and shit? You come up with a... Never. Okay. I was never... I mean, I don't even smoke weed, bro. Okay. I mean, the only thing I do or used to do a lot is drink, but I was never into drugs. Mm. And it was just... It just wasn't my thing. Mm. You know what I mean? So, no, I was always... um No, I was always cool, man. You know, at the club... Toss it back a few, trying to get us females. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> that was about it. But um, I got into television, like I said, on a fluke. And I was watching a story on Channel 2 News, and they were talking about public access television. And they had this show where this woman was playing strip strip poker mm-hmm. on TV, and they showed it. And I was like. Like actually showed her naked? Yeah. And I was like, man, what kind of station On is Channel this? 2? Yeah, well, Channel 2, I mean, they showed it covered up, but they were talking about public access television, how it's free speech, uh-huh. and people could just get away with murder. Uh-huh. So I seen that story, and then the next day, I remember at the time I wanted to, another venture was I wanted to be a rapper. Um, And I went to go see how much it cost to, like, press a record. And once they told me how much it, it cost to press a record, I was like, don't want to be a rapper anymore. So I'm walking down the street and seeing this poster that said, watch the Ku Klux Klan TV show, City Visions Channel 25. And I was like, that's that public access station. And I was like, how does the Klan have a show? So I went to a phone booth. And you heard me say phone booth. I went to a phone booth and called the station. Uh-huh. And I was like, and I, I have, my comedy was kind of like, you know, pro-black. You know, I was in the X-Klan. That was my thing. And um, At this time, was your... Uh, your comedy, it was on the rise? Yeah, it was. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'd been a comedian at that time for about three years. Okay. So I was pretty solid, you know, with my material. I had a, a decent, um, maybe 10, 12 minutes. Mm. And when I called the station, you know, they explained to me what public access was. And they said, you can have a show. And I was like, oh, really? So they told me I had to bring in like proof of a uh, San Francisco residency and a energy bill or something like that. I just happened to have a phone bill in my pocket mm. and the station was half a, half a mile from where I made the phone call. So they were just giving out shows. They was just giving out shows. So but I, you had to create the show. You had to create okay. the show. So I actually walked to the station from the phone booth, mm. signed up for it. They told me what I had to do. They gave me this big list of people that was qualified to use their equipment. You had to make all the phone calls. Hey, man, I'm doing a dance show. Could you come do camera? Could you direct? And the whole nine. And um, did you have to do the show at the uh, at that space? Yeah. Okay. Had to do it at the space because they had all the cameras. Mm. You know, they had a camera. They had a small studio, three camera shoot. You couldn't take the camera and be like, yo, I got to I got to film. Not. Yeah. You had to be on a. Uh, you had to go through their training in order to do that before you mm. can check cameras out. So, okay. no, nah, I just did it at their studio and I invited all the people that I used to club with down at the studio. Mm. So I used to have, you know, 20, 25 people in the studio. You know, got a little soundtrack. We used to dance off of different music. It was actually pretty cool. So it was basically like Soul Train. It was basically like a Soul Train. But what I decided to do was um, interview a lot of local recording artists. So Mm -hmm. I found, you know, a lot of local recording artists and I would interview them first and then play their music. And then we would dance to their music. How long did that last? Um, I was doing the Beagle Zone probably about a month before I ran into another producer that was doing music television. Like I, I knew about music television and I called like Capitol Records 
And it was like, sure, we'll send you some videos. So the first video I ever played was a MC Hammer dancing machine. Mm-hmm. And this guy that I ran in, he was just doing music television. And I was like, oh, I like what he's doing. And we actually, our times actually ran into each other to where I was supposed to be shooting a show, but I didn't have any crew. It was just like me and maybe one or two other people. Mm. But he had a full crew. And he was like, look, man, if you let me get some of your production time, I'll let you use my crew. And I was like, cool. <laughs> so, you know, after he finished taping his show, I was watching his show. I was like, okay, this is music television. He's doing interviews. This is cool. I did my dance show. I had like 20 people in my studio and he's looking at my show like, damn, this is cool. So we just collaborated. Mm-hmm. And from there, we was on the air probably about two or three years with that show. Is public television still around? Um, I believe it is. They have a public uh, station in San Francisco. Um, they used to have one that was located in um, El Cerrito. Mm-hmm. Um, they had one in Oakland. Uh, usually most cities or major cities that had like their own TV station or their own local station would yeah. have um, access television. So you basically just stopped doing a show because... You just didn't feel um, like doing it anymore? Yeah, I was just like, I was doing it with, um, not the dance show, because it was just like, you know, trying to get these people to come in every week or every two weeks to film was Mm. just getting difficult. But doing the music television show was easy. We just Mm. show up. We already had host. And we had invite, um, you know, uh, performers down there to come perform. Matter of fact, uh, one of the shows we did, we had X-Clan actually come to the studio and perform. X Clan, who's that? Um, was, look it up. X Clan, <laughs> he the word of a brother. Um, <laughs> look up X Clan is a group out of New York. Okay, uh, real heavy into the movement, man. But uh, X Clan was one of the dopest groups ever. And during this time, you were still doing comedy. I was still doing okay. comedy. Yeah, we had Latifah came down to the station. Sister Queen Soldier Latifah, came, Queen Latifah, Sister Soldier, and they were uh, on your show. A lot, yeah, on a public access show. No, on your show specifically? Yeah, on okay. the on the show that I was working with on the um, uh, New World Music Videos, mm-hmm. which was what it was called. Yeah, they was on our show. Okay. So we had like big name. When Sir Mix-a-Lot came out with uh, Baby Got Back, we interviewed him. Mm. So yeah, we had some major majors on the show coming down to a public access studio mm. because it wasn't like television was not that rampant like it is now. So people didn't know. They was like, oh, this is promotion. So- they was mm-hmm. on it, and it, the station never said public access on the door. They came down, TV station, mm-hmm. it's all good. Did you meet more, did you tend to meet more famous people doing your TV show or comedy? You mean to this date? Well, just back in that day. Back in the day, um, we met, I think, a lot of recording artists doing the show mm-hmm. because... Um, we used to get press passes to go to things like, you know, KMEO Summer Jam. They used to give us press passes and, you know, everybody used to come to the KMEO Summer Jam. Mm-hmm. So we met a lot of people there. Um, there was some other shows that we were invited to that, like, if somebody was in concert, they would call us and go, Hey, man, can you come cover this? So we would get backstage passes to go do interviews with folks. Do you feel like it was uh, a faster rise to success doing the TV show or uh, comedy? Comedy. Probably, I would say comedy because comedy got me more notoriety. Mm. Um, doing a TV show was on public access. It was only in San Francisco. 
So if you lived outside of San Francisco, you couldn't see it. Yeah. But San Francisco is a major city. So when you call in these record companies trying to get interviews and stuff like that, you tell them San Francisco, which at that time was the number five television market in the country. It was mm-hmm. like, oh, cool. And we had, I think we were on like an hour and a half. We had three 30-minute shows. Mm-hmm. So that just looked like we were, you know, really doing something. Mm-hmm. But yeah, comedy, man, you got to work with cats that you see on television. Did you, um, after you finished that dance show, did you create another show? Um, no, I worked on New World Videos for a while. And then I moved to the East Bay. And when I moved to the East Bay, I started doing more comedy. But what got me, um, to move to the East Bay, I got married in 1990 and my wife and I was like, no, we're not going to live in San Francisco because at that time it was still expensive. And unless you were living in low income housing or something like that. Yeah. You couldn't afford it. So we moved to San Leandro first before we settled in Oakland. Mm-hmm. But when I was working with New World Videos, we were at a um, music conference that was in Foster City. Well, first explain to me what New World Videos was. New World Videos was a uh, music television show. So it, it was like, like on MTV public and VH1 or something? Yeah, but okay. it was local. Okay. And we had two shows. We had two shows. One was called New World videos which was live on the air so we did a 30 minute live show Mm -hmm. and then new world music videos was a one hour show and i combined like in public access television you had to well it's like a lottery for time slots Mm -hmm. you know what i mean so it's like you put your you know you dig out of a hat and they'd be like oh wednesday at 2 30 that'd be your time but a friend of mine, he had the producer, his name is Greg Wallace. He had Saturdays at one. And then in the lottery, I drew Saturdays at two thirty. Mm-hmm. But then the producer that had one thirty, I called him up and was like, Hey man, can we switch times? He was like, Cool. So Greg's time was at one, mine's is at one thirty, and we just combined the uh we just combined the two thirty minutes to make an hour. Mm-hmm. Did you enjoy um, the television side better than uh, the comedy? I actually enjoy both of them. Mm. You know, comedy, comedy is performance. You yeah. know what I mean? And I, I really like performing, you know, in front of you because comedy is like you have to get up there and actually provoke people to laugh. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So that was real fun to me. But comedy got me more notoriety because people used to want me to do kids parties and, you know, they didn't understand what comedy was or you know somebody like hey man i'm having a retirement party for my parents can you come do a set mm. <laughs> and i'm like you serious and i was like man you ain't a couple hundred you know okay i'm on my way <laughs> what is the be- uh what is the time where you were like you know what i i'm really making it in this business when you realized it when i when i appeared on a bt's comic view okay first season yeah, that's a big uh, that's a big thing. Yeah, everything like I think everything in my life, which is funny, it just like it corresponds. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like when I got into public access television, you know, I seen a story on TV about public access television, and then the next day, I look, I see a poster that's talking about the same station. You know what I mean? When I got into um, television, I'm at a music conference. And at that music conference, I knew the producer at the music conference and there was a comedian on stage failing. Like he was horrible. And I went up to the producer and was like, dude, let me get five minutes. And he was like, you can't do no worse. 
And I ended up, I did about 10 minutes on stage, 10 to 15 minutes on stage, and I ended up hosting that whole weekend because they had music showcases and all. And he was like, dude, can you, can you do the whole weekend? I was like, fine. So I did like three shows that weekend. And mm-hmm. then he invited me back the next year and got me a room and paid me. So <laughs> it was actually kind of dope. Is this how you got the comic view? Uh, I got show? comic view through um, this cat named Rick Sullivan, who mm-hmm. was uh, you know a big cat in comedy. He's um, a producer, and he was working with like Cat Williams when people didn't know who Cat Williams was. Kevin Hart when people didn't know who Cat. I mean, Kevin Hart was like matter of fact. I think he was one of Kevin Hart's first paid gigs. Mm. So you know he had a lot of people that came through his camp, and um, he was doing a. Comic View had reached out to him because they knew that he was doing comedy showcases. And he used to do one at this art gallery on, um, I think it was 8th and Broadway. No, 4th or 5th and Broadway in Mm -hmm. Oakland. He was doing a huge showcase. And then BET had approached him because Comic View was, was in his first season. And Comic View, they used to take comedians from around the country and go into like these local clubs, film them, and then put them on for like, you know, one or two minutes, um, remotely. And he had put me on the Comic View showcase. What year was this? This was 1992. Okay. Yeah, this was like 1992. Mm. And the funny thing about that is that when I first heard that they was going to have me on television, I was at a, um, there was this thing called the Bay Area Black Comedy Competition, which was like huge. It came out in like 1986 and I was in like the first three or four of them. And, you know, Jamie Foxx came from the Black Comedy Competition. D.L. Hughley came from the Black Comedy Competition. Mark Curry, all these folks. And they did one in LA. And a producer asked me to come down there and um, perform. And I came down there to perform. And Comic View had two different things. They would show like a videotape from somebody from across the country, or you can come to their studio and perform. And after I did my set, they had asked me to come to the studio and perform, but then they had already had my uh, tape ready to play. Mm-hmm. So they had called me back and was like, nah, man, we're going to play your segment that you did out here, uh, out in the Bay at Tommy T's on this day. The funny thing about it is that when I was at the uh, music conference I was telling you about, there was a station called Soul Beat, which was huge out here. You know, it came out in 1978. Soul Beat. Yeah. It's with that black dude with the green eyes? Or am I tripping? No, nah, that's Donnie Simpson. That's BT. Okay, I guess. <laughs> now, Soul Beat was, a, uh, Soul Beat International Television Network was Oakland's own black station. Mm. came out in 1978. Used to play a lot of local commercials. Um, they used to you know, be big in the industry as far as interviewing folks. I mean, they even interviewed Michael Jackson down, you know what I mean? Um, and they had seen me do a set at that music conference because they were getting like this lifetime achievement award. And two years later, one of the, I heard my name, Rockefeller. I turned around and it was one of the, uh, videographers from Soul Beat. He said, dude, we've been looking for you for like two years. I was like, word. She gave me a card and said, call us. Mm. So I called them and they said, well, come up here and let's talk to you. Fine. Had this big thing on the 25th floor by the lake off of Perkins. And I went up there and the day I had my interview with Soul Beat, they were, they was playing my segment on Comic View. 
So I'm interviewing for one black station and showing on another black station nationwide. So it was cool. So that's why I was like, everything just, mm. you know, just happened for me in a row. So the Comic View, you you didn't actually physically go on a Comic View stage or anything. They just played. My segment that okay. I had taped at uh, Tommy T's because they came out here to film the segment. They wanted me to go on the stage, but then they found out that my segment was about to play. Mm. So they was just like, you don't have to come down here. We're going to play you anyway. So after that happened, did your life change? Like being featured I, on uh, BZ's comedy? A lot of people got, I got noticed a lot. Mm-hmm. And I really didn't take advantage of it. You know what I mean? It was like. You know, I, in what way? I got it. I was working for the station Soul Beat. And I was on the air like five or six days a week. I actually had a morning show that was like five hours from like seven to noon. Mm-hmm. And I got so inundated to what, what I was doing with television. I mean, I was still doing comedy, but then the comedy just started tapering off because I started liking television more mm-hmm. than trying to find performances. Yeah. So it kind of like tapered off for me. And then um I just strictly was doing television. You know, I started my own company in 1995 doing television because I liked the aspect of music television because, mm-hmm. you know, I was meeting people. So it was still cool, but the comedy was always in the background. Like if somebody asked me to go on stage, I could still do it because I was still a writer. Mm-hmm. But I started doing television more than I was doing comedy. Did you make that change because television was just easier to do? It was actually, yeah, I wouldn't say it was easier to do, but it was it was fun. You know, because I got to travel, like with Sobeat, I got to travel to all these music conferences. Um, I met the um, uh, Lauren Hill's group. Um, Fuji's. The Fuji's, like when they were just now coming out. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, I met um, the group Black when they were just coming out. Mm. You know what I mean? I met Pink. We did an interview with Pink when they were, she was doing a showcase in Santa Monica. Mm. You know what I mean? So I was interviewing all these people. I was like, okay, this is cool. You know, so I got into the hosting thing more than doing the comedy. But the comedy was, you know, it was always lurking, always there. I um, I wouldn't say regret, but I think if I would have kept doing comedy, I could have actually been further. So, or I would have got into Hollywood sooner. Because mm. I was getting a lot of compliments when I was a comic. And matter of fact, I met a MC Lights manager at the time. His name was uh, Nat Robinson. Mm-hmm. And he was managing MC Light and also her brother, the group Audio 2. And he had seen me at the same music conference that I was at and actually gave me a number to an agent in New York. And all, and all he did is said, call him. And when I called the agent in New York, dude was like, well, I don't know who you are. Just send me a tape. If Nat said you cool, you cool. And I never sent him a tape because at that time I was such a perfectionist. I was like, if I don't send him the right tape, yeah, they might go, nah, man, we don't like this kid. When basically they just wanted to see me. Mm-hmm. And I had tapes from that weekend that I performed at this at um, this conference that I could have just sent. Mm-hmm. But I wanted, I needed it edited. I needed it this. I needed it that. So and this. So you never ended up sending him anything. I never sent him anything. <laughs> and this. And the funny thing is that this agency was, you know, they had some acts back then. You know, they had some cats that they already had on television. Yeah. So I was like, all I had to do was send it to him, and it was all good. And mm-hmm. then what I didn't do is that, since you know Nat was already managing folks, 
I could have been like, well, bruh, since mm-hmm. you're managing, guide me, hook me up. You yeah. know what I mean? And I never thought about that because it's like MC Light was still doing music videos back then. I was like, just put me in a video. Mm-hmm. You know, I would have went broke flying to New York. Like, dude, just tell me what it be. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I never took advantage of it. I never thought ahead, so to speak. Mm. Did anyone give you any, uh, did anyone tell you like, oh, you should move to like New York or move to LA? And you, because you're in the, you're in the business that basically is basically in LA or New York, those big markets. Yeah. People always say that. Like every comedian out here, they always like, well, you need to move to LA. And there's a lot of comedians that, you know, move to LA and prosper. Why did you stay in the Bay? Cause I love the Bay. Mm. You know, the Bay was just my thing. And I'm like, if you're hot in the Bay, then people will hear about you because the Bay, it's big, but it's small. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's like, if you're hot out here and I was doing shows in the three biggest cities out here in the Bay, which is San Francisco, Oakland, and San Jose. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So it was like, if you're big out here, people are, hey, man, I want to talk mm-hmm. to that cat. You know what I mean? So yeah. that's when I actually started getting paid shows just by doing that. So, you know, the Bay was lovely to me. Mm-hmm. And then I was still, you know, doing television with Soul Beat and the whole nine. So my thing was, I didn't, and I was performing with LA comics and some of them cats were cutthroat. You know, I didn't want to go down to LA and I got a good bit, you know, at an open mic night or whatever. And these cats steal your set. (laughs) You know what I mean? And some of these dudes were already, you know, doing television because they were already where the industry was. Mm -hmm. And you didn't want to hear your joke. Like, man, this mother, you know what I'm saying? That never happened to you? Um, it happened to me once out here with this dude. So one joke, but everybody knew it was mine. So every other comedian was calling him like, man, why are you still in rock shit, bro? Mm. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? So. Uh, so you, you were talking about back in the day, all these independent like radio stations and TV shows, networks. Do you think that nowadays... Because I don't think you can find that nowadays in the Bay Area or that many as what you were talking about back in your days. Do you think that the Bay Area should go back to that? More people should like create these uh, platforms for other people? Well, since you got social media. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was about to say. Do you think social media took over that? That's what it did. Because people don't understand, even doing a public access show, it was a hustle. Mm -hmm. But people had the love for what they did. You know what I mean? Like my thing was, I've always been a writer. I've always been a big uh, fan of formatting. Like even when I had my first TV show, I had it down to the minute what I was going to be doing. Okay. Mm. This is the interview segment. This is the dance segment. This is the video segment. You know what I mean? I had it scripted Mm. and anything that happened back in the day, like even look at recording artists, man, if you was going to interview a recording artist, he'll come to you with a package. You know, he'll have a, a, a folder with his picture on the front, headshot in, some tear sheets, uh, tape, you know, the whole nine and be like, mm. this is me. And them folders are probably costing cats seven, eight dollars a package. Whereas now in, you know, the social media world or when everything is easier, I've had people just walk up to me with something written in Sharpie. It was like, Hey, bro, I want you to give me $15 for this. <laughs> So social media has made everything easier to get out there without the hustle. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like with, with podcasts, you see some people, man, they just set up their, their phone and they'll just 
talk shit for two hours. Mm. But you have millions of people hitting them. Yep. So they feel that they don't have to have production value to where I need production value. Mm. You know what I mean? I need other people to look at it like if a potential sponsor was looking at you, they'll look at it and go, like the way they look mm. with a little money, I know they're going to do more. Mm-hmm. So that was all my thing. You know what I mean? So people, even if you still have public access television, it's way too easy to do it without. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you nowadays you hear a lot of comedians like old school comedians, and then they talk down on these new comedians who are on the rise because of social media and stuff like that. People who who are on Instagram and they come out with like little fifteen second videos, and then they become they get TV commercials, they get uh, acting jobs, they land t- uh, TV shows and whatnot. And then you have a bunch of old school comedians who say, okay, well, you guys didn't put in the work like we did. Like we had to, just like you were, you had to do all these open mic nights for all these years. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Yeah. I mean, it's social media is like this. What a lot of the older comedians say is that you don't have stage time. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So you being funny and getting a couple of million hits doesn't antiquate you to be to doing five to ten minutes of straight material. Yeah. Because that's your thing. And some of these cats, they use their popularity um, you know, to get on and then you got producers that go, oh man, this kid getting five million hits from these little videos that he's doing. Let's invite him to headline a show. Mm. And I'm like, a headliner man is doing 30 to 45 minutes. Mm. And all you got is some YouTube clips and they go up and just make up shit yeah. on stage or they think of what they seen another comedian do and then steal his material because they don't have stage time. Mm-hmm. And that's why a lot of the older comedians are pissed off because they was like, this dude doesn't have stage time. He's really not a comic. You know, he's a cat that came up with these cool little clips. They're cool, but <laughs> these <laughs> clips, I mean, you acting and you doing all of this, that's not material. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I agree. I think nowadays it's all about just how many fucking clicks and views you have. And companies don't even care about what the hell you're talking about. They're just looking at, oh, this guy got two million, two million views. Let's, let's do some business with him. Exactly. So they're not even paying attention to the, like the actual content. So I do think that's the negative part of, uh, like social media. But the positive part about that is, Younger people are way more business minded nowadays than they were back in, uh, I think back in the days because they're like, okay, they're cutting out the, they're cutting out the big record label. They're doing it their, themselves. They're cutting out the, oh, we don't need, uh, we don't need Netflix. I'm going to create a YouTube channel and right. then boom, do it on my own and stuff. Oh, I'm going to buy this camera and learn how to on YouTube, learn how to do it, like how to work it. And now I have a whole TV show on YouTube. So I do think that's a positive. Do you agree? It is cool, but television is always king. Period. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'd rather be on Netflix than, you know, mm-hmm. my, if, I, if I'm making money off of my own YouTube channel because you can't make money off of YouTube, that's fine. Mm-hmm. But I'd rather be on Netflix. You know, mm-hmm. I'd rather be on television mm-hmm. on some super legit than, you know, just spinning my wheels on. I mean, you get a couple of million hits. You're probably getting, you know, the same viewers or whatever. You know, that's fine in context, but. That's not the bigger picture because people uh, was telling me, you know, back in the day, I'm like maybe 
when computers really started hitting it, they were like, well, people are going to be watching um, television on computers. I mean, they do that now, but still, if I'm on ABC, you can't beat that. Yeah. You know what I mean? And they're watching ABC online too. So it, it, it makes it that much bigger. You know, just recently, well, actually two years ago, you, you, you know, the, um, the reporter Chauncey Bailey who got slain out here in Oakland. He was an Oakland reporter mm. that got slain, um, by some cats from, uh, your black Muslim bakery. Um, this was, this happened 2007. Um, I was, uh, I got interviewed because Chauncey was uh, a friend of mine. So we were just talking about, you know, Chauncey, who he was to the community, stuff like that. I shot that probably two years ago mm-hmm. and they just aired it this past weekend. And I didn't even know. Mm. And a friend of mine's, uh, or my cousin's, um, it was what was it? No, my cousin's wife's mother said, called her and was like, I just seen Rock on TV. Mm. And he was talking about Chauncey Bailey. And I was like, Oh, was that out? So I found it and it was actually a pretty good thing. And I know a lot of my friends called me and was like, dude, I seen you on television. And like I said, I didn't even know about it, but the marketing must have been incredible because everybody's seen it. Yeah. So that's the power of television. Mm. Well, uh, back in the day when you were a comedian, right? You had uh, uh, you had like D.L. Hughley, you had uh, Bernie Mac, um, like Steve Harvey. These comedians back in those days would say like some crazy shit that you probably would get in trouble for saying now. Like talking about uh, mentally ill kids or something like that or talking about um, people's sexuality. Do you think that today people are too sensitive? Yeah, people are way too sensitive. It was like they don't allow comedians to be comedians. That's Mm -hmm. why I'm a big fan of Dave Chappelle. Mm -hmm. You know, um, Love Dave Chappelle because he doesn't care. Yeah. Because all you, I, I'm one of them cats that like, you may not like what I say, but just let me know when I'm lying. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bill Burr, who I call the white Dave Chappelle, who's actually been on the Chappelle show. Um, he tell, he's one of those comedians that tell the truth too. You know what I mean? He was just like, just let me know when I'm lying. You don't have to like what I say, but mm-hmm. that's what it is. You can't go to a comedy show and, Bitch at the comedian just because he's talking about this. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I can't cater my comedy to you or what you feel is appropriate or inappropriate because you're always going to piss somebody off. And people are super sensitive. You can't do anything nowadays. Yeah, I agree. And it makes no sense. Even when you're acting, you can play like this drug dealer. People, why you play a drug dealer? You know what I mean? And I like the actors I go because I was working. It was a role. Somebody had to play it. <laughs> you know what mm-hmm. I mean? So people are just super sensitive about everything. If you know, if you use a, a, a inappropriate word in a movie, I mean, why you didn't change the word? Because that wasn't in the script. Yeah. Like there's people who apologize. This is like a stupid example. There's like Kim Kardashian. She she wore braids one time, and then Twitter slammed her because she was like stealing from black culture I'm like yo it's just fucking braids and then she apologized oh, i didn't mean to offend the black community just because you wore braids 
So I do think it's like fucking, uh, it's like stupid shit. And it's like, um, it's kind of like bullying. Right. Like cyberbullying. They're bullying you to apologize or they're, and then these celebrities, they apologize out of being in fear of being canceled. Right. Which makes no sense because Bo Derek, uh, who was in this movie back in the day called 10. Yeah. Bo white Derek, lady. Yeah. White mm-hmm. She wore braids. A lot of people don't even know that. They yeah. don't even know who Bo Derek is. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But if you look up Bo Derek, she had like one picture. She was on the cover of this magazine and she had braids, like blonde braids. Mm-hmm. And people thought it was cool. Yeah. Nobody tripped. You know, nowadays people trip off of everything. Man, you got people apologizing for stuff they said 15, 20 years ago. I would never do that. Yeah. Because you got to think that was a different time. What I, what I thought about at 20 wouldn't be the same thing I'm thinking about as 40, but I'm not going to apologize for growing up. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I'm not going to apologize for developing. Yeah. And then you have a a lot of uh, people who preach about, oh, mental health, right? Oh, we all believe in mental health, this and that, this and that. And then when someone, says something that's offensive they jump on and be like oh i'm gonna use the baby i don't know if you know this story but you know who the baby is he's a rapper yes. right so he was in the news because he was at a live show and then he said something about um like if you are happy that you don't have hiv or aids or something like that and he said something about being gay or something uh, if you're happy that you're not gay and you don't have hiv or aids make some noise so after that, it went that little that small clip went viral, and obviously you know that community slammed him, and then he was losing money like all these. He was set to perform on a whole bunch of different like concerts, and then all these concerts canceled him, took him off the uh, the lineup and everything. So he lost a lot of money over that, and then he was getting bullied over and over. All these other celebrities chiming in like, "Oh, you shouldn't have said that." Blah blah blah. People were taking him off songs. Songs that the only reason this song is popular is because he was on the song. And um, so then after a while, he apologized. He was like, oh, I didn't mean to uh, offend anyone. I didn't realize what I said, blah, blah, blah. You know how they give that apology that I honestly don't even think these people mean. They're just saying it because they're losing money now. Right. And um, I'm just like, I'm a true believer. In it. And if you say something the first time, that's literally what you believe um so basically he apologized and then what what basically what i'm saying is people who say they believe in mental health shouldn't be uh sh- they're like hypocrites because they say i believe in mental health but then what if this what if this guy was like there was something in his life that just made him say that right now and then he was ha- like having a mental breakdown so you can't say i believe in mental health and then say oh because this guy is having because he has no history of ranting like that maybe he was going through something that made him say that so why cancel him you know what i'm saying you, you get what i'm saying no that yeah. actually makes sense mm-hmm. but you know it's just people are just too quick to you know this like we're talking about this cancel culture is to me it's just ridiculous there's a bunch of sensitive people that are mad about something else mm-hmm. and you're just something else they could be mad about you know, what I mean, that's why you got people out there that are that love when celebrities are going through things because they think that, you know, these celebrities got all of this money. And if they're going through some kind of drama, it's cool for you because these rich people are going through something, mm-hmm. which is ridiculous. It makes no damn sense. Yeah. 
You know what I mean? Well, another uh, stay on cancel culture. Do you think they're quick or or even more faster to cancel African American men than they are to cancel uh, white men? And I say this because if you look at history, Woody Allen, for example, Woody Allen molested his uh, his daughter. Right. He married his stepdaughter. Right. Yes, he did. No one canceled him. No, not at all. People still praise him to this day. That he's one of the greatest one of movie makers. Like if you go to New York, he's like a god in New York. No one canceled him. Hugh Hefner. Hugh Hefner had uh, what's that? What's that girl that used to run around with Michael Jackson? Um, that white lady, Brooke Shields. Brooke Shields. I don't know if you know this, but Hugh Hefner had Brooke Shields when she was like I think like twelve or something, posing Playboy naked, nude, and you can. See this online. They still have these pictures of, of Brooke Shields naked as a like, child in Playboy. No one ever canceled him before he died. He was like treated as a, a god as well. So he was praised. So my question is, but and then when black men do something like Tiger Woods cheating on his wife, they canceled him. I mean, everyone cheats. I mean, not everyone. But there's been a million or not even a million, thousands of men other than black people who cheated on their wives, nothing happened. Tiger Woods, uh, what else? You have the baby, like I just said. So you have a numerous accounts of black men doing little things, and they're canceled, losing money, taking money out of their family's uh, mouth. And then you have these white men who do these crazy shits, and no one even mentions it. Now, one thing, uh, speaking on Playboy, I'm a big Playboy fan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because the reason why is because well, are you familiar with uh that Brooke Sh- the Brooke Shields thing I wasn't familiar with but I know that Brooke Shields mother was her manager mm-hmm. or her momager mm-hmm. uh, and she used to get Brooke to do a lot of crazy stuff because they were paying Brooke you know over the top yeah. I'm not familiar with the Playboy uh thing with the pictures and I'm surprised I haven't heard about that. Mm-hmm. But the reason why I like Hugh Hefner, because he was a, a cool journalist. One thing he did is that he interviewed presidents. Um, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X both did um, articles or stories in Playboy. And I think they were told by Alex Haley. Mm. Um, he also was one of the first guys with when he had the Playboy Club. He used to have black performers perform at the Playboy Club. Um uh, when white folks were tripping, like he had Dick Gregory, mm-hmm. um, you know, Bill Cosby, um, you know, a lot of Richard Pryor, a lot of these black folks uh, performed in the Playboy Club. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So yeah, he also got the Playboy Jazz Festival to where he has, you know, a lot of black performers when other companies were shying away from uh, black performers. So that's one reason why I'm a big fan of uh, Hugh Hefter because he, he did a lot. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Especially... uh for African Americans, as far as you know, putting them out there, giving them a chance to do their thing and the whole nine, and they'll tell you that. I mean, yeah, I'm, sure. I'm, I'm not saying he was bad. I just said, yeah. I just think it's Brooke crazy. Thing, I yeah. was like, Ugh. I just think it's crazy that he's he wasn't canceled for that, right? Because I was, you know, like it, back in the day, they wasn't canceling for anything. Like you'd really have to screw up to get canceled, but then you also got to think of how people hear about things now. Yeah. Because you can do something, you know what I mean? And it's on. Like, you look at the Rodney King tape. Mm-hmm. You know, that was a fluke that somebody happened to be there with a video camera. Exactly. But now you got a phone to where 
the minute you see two people fighting, instead of somebody calling for help, the first thing they do is take out their phone. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. it's kind of like, that's what people do. Oh man, I'm going to take out my phone because somebody might pay me for my footage. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's quick for you to do things just like you was talking about the baby, how that just went viral to where if it just happened back in the day, you probably would have never heard about it. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? It wouldn't have been enough people to really make it a big deal. Mm -hmm. So that's another thing about social media is way too quick the way you can just upload something and there you go. You have a lot of um not only podcasts, but you got a lot of these, what I call these fake journalists that don't have a journalistic bone in their body. They don't research a story before they put it out. Mm -hmm. The first thing they do is put out the negative story just to see how many likes and viewers they're going to get without researching. And then once they research the story and see that it's totally opposite of what they reported, they just hope it just, you know, goes under the rug <laughs> mm -hmm. and nobody remembers that they put it out. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So, well, you grew up in the uh, the radio days, right? Yes. And then, like, podcast is like taking over now, and especially became it increased dramatically during like this whole pandemic. Everyone was stuck in the house. Now, everyone, all these celebrities have podcasts now. Um, how do you feel about radio versus podcasting? I listen to. Um I like to listen to a lot of satellite radio because it's like, you know, radio rated R. Mm -hmm. I barely listen to podcasts, you know what I mean? Because it like for you to listen to a podcast, it takes time to do that. You know what I mean? And the only way you can listen to a podcast, like if you roll it in your car, you know, or something like that, because most of these podcasts are like, you know, an hour or yeah. longer, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? So you really got to be into the subject or really be into the person to really listen to podcasts. And there's, mm -hmm hundreds of thousands, if not millions of podcasts out there, you know, and there's all these different ideas that you got to figure out. Okay. These, these 20 or 30,000 cats are talking about the same thing. Which one of these cats am I really going to listen to? You know, mm -hmm. which one can I favor versus radio? You only had a couple of stations, just like back in the day, TV, you only had a, a mm -hmm. few stations. Now you got, you know, thousands, mm -hmm. but I listen to podcasts that, you know, uh, and like, when you listen to satellite radio, some of those radios are like podcasts. You know, it might be, you might hear a host and a co-host and they might be in two totally different places and you <laughs> never know, yeah. but they're interesting. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? But I'm starting to listen to more podcasts because there's a lot of cats out there. It's like, I'm listening to them and go, that's exactly what I'm thinking because that's how you hear it. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's why I think a lot of people like public access television because we can get on there, especially in San Francisco, and raise hell and can't nobody say nothing because it was free speech. Mm -hmm. And I think that's how these these podcasts are. Yeah. You, know, you get on there and say what you want. Can't nobody say nothing. Exactly. So if, someone's to ask, if someone was to ask you to pick one, your pick would be radio still. Um, radio versus podcasting. I would more favor towards podcasting because you got individuals um, mm -hmm. that are producing their own content. Mm -hmm. You know, radio, is, it is what it is. You got the top 40. You're listening to the same thing as routine. Where podcasting, the, the podcasting that I like is if it's structured, what I like to call organized confusion. It sounds like it's all over the place, but it's actually really structured. Mm-hmm. 
You know, those are the people I like to where if they're on for an hour, the first eight minutes is going to be about this. And then even if that subject is not over, they'll start talking about something. We'll table that and we'll get back to it. And now, you know, I like structure. Mm. So that's the gats I really like listening to versus somebody that's just going off the cuff mm. for like an hour. And you're like, no, <laughs> you know what I mean? All right. So um, you said you have a production company, correct? Yes. VJ TV, the visual radio network, music nonstop. Okay. And uh, explain when was this created? VJ TV started 1995. Uh, me working with Soul Beat, I like how Soul Beat um, recognized local artists. Mm-hmm. You know, that was my big thing, working with local artists. And I used to interview when I had my show on, like I said, I had a six-hour morning show. And the uh, owner of Soul Beat, Chuck Johnson, um, who's gone now, he really had a love for the Oakland community. You know, and he used to let me do basically anything I wanted to. If I wanted to create a show, he said, let me go ahead and do it. Um, and I interviewed a lot of local artists. Like I interviewed the Loonies before, before I got five on it. You know what I mean? I interviewed, um, and so be, since people knew it in the industry, I used to interview, like I interviewed Jamie Foxx back in the day when he was, uh, when he had this song called Infatuation. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, I interviewed a lot of people. This group called Shy. I mean, it was a lot, a lot of big name artists I interviewed from Soul Beat. And I just like that feel of it because he was mixing local, um, artists with industry artists. And just that mix was really cool, mm-hmm. you know? And then when I was doing stand up, a lot of cats used to hire me to, um, MC showcases. Mm-hmm. So working with lo- local artists was just, I just developed a love for it. So, and Chuck told me one day when I was telling him, man, I think this is what you should do with your station and this and that. And Chuck was like, well, when you get your own shit, you do that. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know what? You're right. So that's when I created uh BJTV because I was working with a lot of local artists and I want to, you know, I, it started off as, one or two shows an hour on public access. And then I graduated to least access, which you have to pay for your time, but you can also get sponsorship. Mm-hmm. So you guys basically, your company basically uh, produces TV shows. We produce TV shows. I hooked up with another uh, producer. His name is Ramesses head um, history to make it entertainment, which I've been knowing for a while. And with Ramesses and this other producer named uh, Farrell Powell, mm-hmm. who has uh Farrell films, we've created, seven movies mm. and six of them uh were available on amazon prime and one of the, one or two of the movies actually was uh in walmart and best buy What's the name? So, can you name any of the movies um basketball 316 was one that we did the first movie that we did was called town biz it came out in 2006 mm. and before we could even release the movie somebody got a copy of it and bootlegged it yeah. So it was that the funny thing was it was even bootleg. It got as far as Utah. Mm. Like a friend of mine that I know was in Utah. I was like, dude, man, I was just walking by this bootlegger and bro wanted to sell me town beers. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> what's uh? So when you started your company, what is uh, one of the hardest things that you realized? Oh shit, that you didn't know what was going to that was going to be so hard and challenging. You need money. Getting money? Yeah, getting money, man, because you have to be the mouthpiece. When you're doing your own company, it 
it became harder and harder to get sponsorship because you got to go convince people to spend money with you, mm. but you have to have something to offer them. So if I had, you know, like I said, I was on public access and then I graduated to least access, but even with least access, you're only in certain areas. Like if I was in San Francisco, I'm just in San Francisco. If I'm uh, on least access in Oakland, I'm just in Oakland, Piedmont, Emeryville, you know, and the same thing across the board. Mm. Whatever city I'm in, I have to go to that city to get on their station. Mm. So it's like my show might be on in San Francisco Saturday at eight o'clock and then in Oakland Fridays at 10 Mm. and then in San Jose on Monday night at six. So you got to combine all of that stuff and tell the record companies, well, I'm on here, I'm on here, I'm on there. So it's not like people can turn you on in every city and watch you across the board. So that was a hustle because you got to send your tapes or you got to take your tapes to them, you know, mm-hmm. the whole night. So it was just convincing people to spend money with you. Mm. Do you feel like you've become better at that I through actually, the years? Yeah, definitely. Mm. I've become better at it, but then um I graduated from doing least access television to doing broadcast television. Broadcast television is basically like your 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 um you know, your channel twos, your KTVUs, your uh CWs, um, you know, your CBSs, that's all broadcast. That mm. means it's everywhere at one time. Mm. And some of the lo- the more local stations, they can sell you airtime. So now with cable television, these stations like Coffee TV 20 and KTSF 26, which is um Mandarin programming, or I like to say foreign programming, they sell you time. So wherever you see an infomercial at, you can buy time. Mm-hmm. But you might have a show that's on at midnight because mm-hmm. that's where the time is available. But the thing is, is that it's all over the place. Like I can tell you my show comes on Saturdays at 1130 because I had a show called Nightcap which is late night R&B, but it was on, it, it was reachable by 7 million viewers mm-hmm. and all nine Bay Area counties. Can't beat that. Mm-hmm. But even to do that in the time, the time slot really wasn't that expensive, but it can get expensive because if you're on every week. What's like the price range of these time slots? Um, it just depends on the time because when you're dealing with broadcast television, it's like if you want a time slot between 7 and 11, which is known as prime time. And they got like, they have an infomercial slot or whatever opened up. You might be paying, you know, two grand, okay. three grand. Cause that's when everybody's watching TV. Whereas if you got a show on Friday at midnight, which with, uh, it's like the midnight tier, you might pay 150 bucks, but you got to get people to watch that. And that's 150. 150- Dollars uh, per thirty minutes. Per thirty minutes. Okay. Yeah, somewhere one fifty, two fifty, just depends on the station. Okay. All right. Can you give uh some people some advice? Um, let's say let some somebody wants to or is thinking about coming into this business or is already in this business and stagnant with uh their their progression. They have you got to have a plan. Mm-hmm. That's it. It's always, you got to have a plan and you got to do research. Before I became a public address announcer, I researched it. Mm -hmm. And like I said, that was another epiphany. At 48, I was just like, you know what? This is what I need to be doing. Because I did it a couple of times just playing with it. And I actually enjoyed it. So 
I researched public address. You know, I went and seen, you know, public address announcers back from the 40s and the 50s and the 60s because, you know, when they had, when it was like the radio decade back in the day, mm. public address announcers were show openings. You know what I mean? Like the Long Ranger before it went to television was on the radio. Superman before it went to television was on radio. Dick Tracy, you know, all of the show openings were the public address announcer. You know what I mean? So just studying all that, mm -hmm. studying who some of the biggest public addresser, dress announcers are to this day, how they did it, what they did, you know, studying, uh, sports. Sports is actually a fluke, mm -hmm. but you know, just studying what you do is the greatest thing that you could ever do. When you want to be a stand up comic, you have to watch comedians, you know, especially if you have a certain style, you find comedians that have your particular style and see what you're going to do different than what they're doing now. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So it's, it's always, you have to study your craft and people don't understand that. You can't fly with it because when you do that, you make mistakes learning when you can actually have a plan from the beginning, then you don't have to go through all of those mistakes. Mm -hmm. You go, okay, this is how this cat is doing it. I see how he's telling his jokes. I see how he structures it. Okay, we got kind of the same material. What's my flow going to be? Versus just getting out there. Somebody said, man, you look like that dude. Yeah. Man, it seems like you biting dude. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So it's it's always research. And researching, when you research and you, when you study stuff, it makes you move faster because you get a sense of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. You know, in public address, I think um, I was doing public address real steady for three or four years and I got Stanford University. I'm a brother that's a public address announcer at one of the top colleges in the world. Mm. You know what I mean? And I'm doing eight sports. So it's just like, and that's all, <laughs> you know, studying, you know, I came out with my own and I can't stand the word branding, but you know what I mean? I came out with my own so-called brand and people loved it mm -hmm. because when they look at me, they go like, I remember doing my first boxing match and I studied, uh, before I did it, I studied, uh, boxing announcers. And, you know, there's more than just, you know, Jimmy Lennon Jr. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and let's get ready to, you know what I'm saying? It's showtime. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> and Michael Buffer, you know, it's, it's more than that. You know, there's a diamond Dave Diamante who used to do stuff back in the day, you know, so just studying them and seeing what their style was. And what I did, um, when I became a public address announcer, my first boxing match, I went out and bought this silver jacket. It was like a silver tuxedo jacket with the black lapel. Um, and I was like, I'm going to go looking like a PA announcer. Mm -hmm. You know, I got, I had my own wireless microphone with a mic flag around it. And when I went to the, uh, it was at, in San Francisco at the Fairmont Hotel, I remember going into the dress room and changing and then coming out, walking into the, uh, the stadium and the security guard who didn't even know me, see me walking towards him. And mm -hmm. it was people at the door and he was like, Hey man, y'all got to move to the side. Here comes the ring announcer. He just knew. And when I walked past him, I was like, you get it because I had the look. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, and that was all a part of studying. Mm. Give me somebody that you look up to and admire in the comedy world the television world and the business world if you have them yeah if you go if you say comedy television 
Um, in comedy, I like Robert Townsend because he's a writer. He's a writer-director. I like Robert Townsend. I love Bernie Mac because mm-hmm. Bernie Mac was just real. He's a real dude. Um, of course, you know, I like Dave Chappelle, but even if you go back in the day, you can always mention Richard Parr because he just transcended. And a lot of people don't know that. Like, if you listen, go back to listen, if you go back to listen to Richard Pryor nowadays, he was saying a lot of stuff that happens now. Mm-hmm. He even said in one of his acts to where he was saying, um, that when black people are on drugs, you know, they're drug addicts and this and that, but when white people get on drugs, it's an epidemic. Yeah. Richard Pryor said that in the eighties, mm-hmm. the late seventies, early eighties. You know what I mean? So there's a lot of things that he was saying back then that's happening now. So just as that, he was a genius. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Dick Gregory was a genius. He said, if you watch his documentary, he said, man, I was at a show that had all of these pork farmers from the South. And we're talking about the sixties and I'm a black comic in there. And I mean, I think it was at, uh, one of Hugh Hefner's clubs. And he said, man, I made a room full of racists laugh for three hours. Mm. So, I mean, just watching those classic cats, I mean, watching a dice clay, I, I like dice clay, Yeah, you know, just, you know, how he structured his thing. So, you know, a lot of the classic cats I like. And, uh, and music, I like Barry Gordy. Big fan okay. of Barry Gordy because his company had structure. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? He had white people and black people up in, in a room. That's the that's the Motown, right? Yeah, that's Motown. Okay. Yeah, Barry Gordy was a genius. If you watch his doc, him and Smokey Robinson, he was just, the way they had their stuff so uniformed, it was great. Mm-hmm. Um, you got to look at uh, Quincy Jones. Mm-hmm. You know, Quincy Jones was doing, um, you know, soundtracks back in the day. You know, and the man is, you know, still here doing his thing. Um, Dr. Dre is, to me, a genius. He's a young Quincy Jones. Mm-hmm. You know, as far as acting is concerned, I like actors that I've seen their career grow. Like uh, uh, Lawrence Fishburne. You know, i seen Cornbread Earl and me when Lawrence Fishburne was like 13 or 14 years old mm-hmm. to what he is now. Watching his transition through television. Don Cheadle, the same thing. You've seen him way back in the day. A lot of people don't know that Don Cheeto was in colors. You know, he had a pivotal character with, a, with um, not a big role. He played Rocket. You know what I mean? So if you go back and look at colors, you'd be like, man, that's Don Cheeto. Mm-hmm. But that's way you never knew that this man was going to develop into the actor he is today. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that's. Um, and then, of course, you got to say Denzel because Denzel went from television to movies, but he's always been at the top of his game. No matter what he did, you can go back and look at a Denzel movie back from the eighties. He had one called Carbon Copy that he did with like Charles Groton, mm. where he was like the black son of this white dude mm-hmm. that he found out about. You know what I mean? But it's just his acting in it <laughs> was great. Yeah. What about the business? The business side, I can say Barry Gordy for the business. Um, I mean, it's just like what he did with Motown. Trying to think of somebody else who I really admire in business. I would say in business, I like Barry. Okay. Barry Gordy, I would, I would say business, Magic Johnson for what he created. Just, he just, you know, took the ball and just ran with it. Mm. Like, you know, he, he's buying Starbucks and he's partnering in everything. Mm. You know, um, I mean, that cat's, in, he's incredible. I see Shaq doing the same thing. Yeah. But yeah, just Magic Johnson doing theaters and I mean, you know, he just 
I like people to just do things like, hey, that's something. Let me go ahead and do that. Mm. All right. Well, this is the uh, this is the point where you can promote uh, anything that you're working on, or if you want any people to know your social media handles, give a shout out to whoever you want to give a shout out to. Um, this is like the promotion minute. No, just go to the website bjtvnetwork.com okay. or bjtvnetwork.rocks r o c k s, and from there you can get uh, rockbox.info, which is my uh, public address. Uh, History in the making entertainment. That's uh, two of the companies that we are doing incredible stuff with. We use a lot of local actors. Um, we use local comedians. We use um, local producers. I mean, we're still involved in just doing local stuff, but we're doing local stuff on a major scale. Like we we've worked with major actors or you know actors in Hollywood. Mm. So we we like to work with people that really want to do their craft. That's our thing. You know what I mean? So if you want to get to all my social media, you can always go to vjtvnetwork.rocks or history and making entertainment.tv. Do you guys like manage? Does your company like manage acts? Like uh, if, you, if you saw like a comedian, you thought it was like, oh, he reminds me of whatever, whatever. Do you ever sign people and like manage them? No, because that's a whole different job. You know, mm-hmm. being a manager is difficult people have a, a misconception about what a manager is you know what i mean and mm-hmm. it's like they think that the manager you know you gotta make all these phone calls like that's what you see as a classic manager but you know that's a job within itself and some people nowadays they're busy living to where taking on that type of responsibility because now you're taking on somebody else's livelihood you know, so you're trying to do your livelihood, trying to take care of somebody else because maybe in the long run, both of y'all can prosper. But that's really a difficult job because it's all phone calls and this and that, especially being a comedian. You don't want to call somebody and go, man, this cat has got all the stage time. He's performing with this person, that person. And then that company tell you, well, we got this cat that got three million hits on YouTube. <laughs> you know, so uh, we're gonna use him as an opener, yeah. And you know, we'll keep you in mind. You know what I mean? Even mm-hmm. if you got the tools to do it. So, but management. I mean, we just like to promote people and give. Well, we say that we're great resume builders. Mm-hmm. I know you can come to us. We're doing movies. We're doing. Um, we we were doing music videos. We were doing television shows. We were doing commercials. So we love using you know, local acts. And if we hear about something, if I hear about a showcase for a comedian, I'll call him and go, Hey bro, check this out. Have you heard about this? You should check it out. Mm. Dope. Well, I appreciate you uh, coming on everyday celebrity podcast. It was, it was a good conversation. Learned a lot. Uh, very knowledgeable. Um, everyone go on that website, check them out, support him in any way that you can. Um, yeah, man. Do you have any last words? Yeah, man. This was fun. Because <laughs> you're a real chill dude. Like, yeah, man. So uh, what do you think about dating white women? Yeah, I'm not. <laughs> I'm, no, not I'm not. I'm not as animated as uh, a lot of other like podcast people. No, man. You 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 get it out, Brian. And I, I like this atmosphere because, man, your atmosphere is dope. Like, it's super comfortable in here. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I want to tell people, hey, man, check this cat out, bro. So mm. I would l- love to uh, listen to more of your podcast, man, because just your your energy is cool. You know, it's laid back, but, mm. you know, you get you get out what you want from folks. Mm-hmm. And that's a good thing. Love the logo. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs>
Well, this is Everyday Celebrity Podcast, and we are out. You.